drama in the ring and on the stage, violence in the ring and at the after party, who fell off the back of a train, who almost died, who was almost a murderer, how does it all end? It's the conclusion of our story about Charles Parson Davies. Crazy territory stories, double crosses and swerves, pro wrestling history nerds. Congratulations, you hit the button, you clicked on the icon, you started the noise that is coming out of my mouth into a machine, through another machine that goes into your ears. Congratulations on the whole process, I'm proud of you, I'm proud of me, I'm proud of us. What am I talking about? What's even happening? My name is Nick Gossard. I am a pro wrestling promoter. I'm a pro wrestling booker. But more importantly for today, I am a pro wrestling history nerd. And I am here with, as always, the Alvin to my chipmunks. I'm giving him top billing this time, mostly out of pity. It's Chongo Bronson. How the heck are you? I live to piss off Dave Seville and to holler at the girl chipmunks, even though we might be related, but they're the only game in town. Hello, nerds! Chongo digresses. That really did have some weird energy looking back on things. It's like the very, it's like the Smurfette principle where yeah. it's like where did the, the, the gender breakdown? Are you the only ones of your species? Are there more of you out there? Were you made in a lab? Were you made by the devil? Who can say? Who cares? That's not the point of this show. I'm just glad to be here. Sorry about the delay. Sorry it took so long to get this episode out. Um, turns out pneumonia is no joke. I was too busy being in the hospital to uh, record. That's on me. I am sorry. Please, I hope you forgive me. But we're here to finish up the story of Charles Parson Davies, the greatest promoter of the 1880s and the 1890s, maybe even the early 1900s. Who can say? Who can put it in perspective? Oh, right. That's my job. Yeah, I mean, it depends on the metric, right? If you're going by, like, epic shenanigans and after-hours bar fights and, like, crazy ass stories that revolve around situations that only promoters of boxers and wrestlers in that era and in that part of the country at that time would happen. There's no rival, man. I yeah. beg your parson. Oh, yeah. oh, I see what you did there. And yeah, this is one of those this is one of those shows that make me love what we're doing here. I love history because this is a man who does not even have a Wikipedia page. And I'll be goddamned if I'm gonna be the person who sets that up. That's too much responsibility. Instead, I will make a four and a half to five and a half hour long podcast series about a man that's only focusing on his wrestling and the occasional boxing match that feels like pro wrestling. This man was primarily a boxing promoter. If we were covering his boxing in depth, we would be talking about this man until 2024, and good God, we don't have that kind of time, gosh darn it. It would be good entertaining uh, shtick, though, because I mean, talk about a rich history. and. Nerds, you know what to do. Let's see how much power the Hippodrome Express has. Let's get the, let's get Parson uh, his own Wikipedia page, guys. I mean, don't expect us to do it. We're doing the legwork here for you, but you can fill in the blanks. Help us out. We will know the true power of the history nerds if, if a Wikipedia page suddenly appears, right? Exactly. I, I feel like, uh, yeah, that's, that's a thing that should exist, probably might exist in the future. It won't be me. Will it be you? If it's you, don't fuck it up. But we're about to jump back into the story. We left off last time in 1890, and Davies spent most of 1890 and 1891 doing what he did best, promote and manage boxers. Again, 
I need to remind you that Davies was primarily a boxing promoter who also handled some wrestling, and this still provided enough crazy stories for a now part four series on the man. On February 15th, 1890, something tragic occurred. In Dallas, Jake Kilrain's sparring exhibition troupe was performing at the Opera House when lightweight champion Tom James was struck in the neck and collapsed. The show continued, with nobody knowing how bad Tom James was hurt. From the Stewart County populist, when the entertainment had about concluded, Muldoon announced that James was unconscious and called for a physician. I don't know if he did a full-blown, is there a doctor in the house? But I can't see that being very far off. Jokes aside, James died that night, reportedly from a broken neck. The entire tour combination was arrested for murder. Kilrain cried like a child. Muldoon paid the doctor's bill and much of the funeral cost. I bring this one up, this specific story, because we often, and correctly, take shots at Muldoon for being a shitty human being, but he was truly a good man in this case. Yeah, and I wonder with something like this, because we all know that in, in time Muldoon ended up trying to like become the czar of pro wrestling and have all of the ability to sanction matches go through him. You wonder if something like this gives a man of action like Muldoon like this sort of idea of inflated sense of purpose where he's like, somebody has to stand against... You know, these guys can't be, and I know it's a boxing thing, but the fact is it's so intertwined. Muldoon's involved, all these guys are involved. He took over and became this really sort of like tyrannical authoritarian figure. And you wonder if, if on this path to that, if things like this helped shape his sort of idea that he needed to do that. It's possible, but the man always was a control freak. Uh, we saw a little bit of that in uh, the, the original episodes we did about Muldoon, even though that wasn't as complete a picture as I would have liked. And you'll hear a lot more about it in our Clarence Whistler series, which is coming up soon. So I feel like it was mostly just his personality, but little things like this, of course, contribute. Yeah, and I, you know, and going back to the bigger picture, how bad would it suck? You're like, I never even got to shake that guy's hand. He treated me like a jabroni in a locker room. He was an asshole to me because I was a job guy and I didn't, he didn't even know my name. And now I'm getting arrested for murder because he got two-pieced in a biscuit? No. I'm curious about that. Like, when they say the entire company, did that include, like, the mop boy? Did that include yeah. the ring crew? Did that involve the janitor? Did that include, like, the, the guy who's Ticket-taking? Yeah. yeah did, it, did the box office girl go down with the ship? Um, I mean, obviously not ever, everybody was released, but what, that's one hell of a roundup. Yeah, I wonder what the chart... It's like, is that... Was it because they didn't know who did it? Was it a conspiracy? Was it because they all profited from it? I, I don't even understand how legally they could do that. Well, in the year 1890, legal for arrest was whatever the police decided to do. <laughs> ah, yes. Ah, so current law standards of it. Chongo digresses. Yes, yes. Um, back to Parson himself, though. In June 1890, the San Francisco Call reported on the 3rd that Davies was leaving to the east and will return with Evan Lewis to challenge all comers. It also states that the match he tried to arrange between Dan McLeod and Joe Acton fell through. This is the first instance where I've seen Davies promoting McLeod. 
though they probably work together going back to the matches with Lewis described in part three of this series. But Dan McLeod became one of his clients. One way or another, he impressed Davies enough originally in San Francisco that he took on the man as a client and would push his career to bigger and better places. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to see who these guys tie their wagons to and how that whole thing plays out. But he obviously saw something in McLeod, you know. He, he saw a young Highlander coming into his prime and he knew there could be only one. In July 1891, Parson put in legit training for the Chicago Elks production of As You Like It, where he would be playing Charles the Wrestler, according to the Chicago Tribune on July 10th. Davies also acted in a play called The Tramp. I didn't get much info about that, but he got good reviews. The Chicago Daily Tribune gave him a favorable review for As You Like It, which was performed at Burlington Park on July 29th, when Charles Davey and Joseph Hansworth, playing Orlando, began the wrestling scene. Someone in the crowd shouted, Two to one on the parson! <laughs> the wrestling was... well. The wrestling was evidently well rehearsed, according to the paper. Oh, so, so it was a hippodrome, and then the fans were into it. I was expecting them to be like, ECW. I just love that this man was, this promoter was acting in a play, like he wasn't busy enough. And then there's a wrestling scene, and he's so well known in Chicago that the peanut gallery is shouting, two to one on the parson! And, and you know, fucking catcalling and treating it like an actual wrestling match. Oh, I bet the, you know, the uh, let him eat cake crowd was so pissed when that happened. They're like, ah, the, the theater has gone to the, to the jabronis. This is terrible. We can't have this. Little did they know the future would hold. Davies then arranged a fight between James Hall and Bob Fitzsimmons, which was a disaster in the making. The match was to take place in July 1891, and there were immediately accusations of fight fixing. The Post-Dispatch wrote, It is known that Parson Davies likes to make a dollar about as well as any man on earth, and Fitzsimmons has confessed his participation in a fixed fight with Hall in Australia before coming to this country, in which he allowed the latter to stop him. In view of all these things, it would be well for outsiders to let the meeting between the men next month severely alone. Again, I love just how openly the press would talk shit. This is, again, before athletic commissions. This is before, you know, there was, well, everything was still betting related. That's where most of the money came from. That's why so much of boxing and wrestling was fixed. Thank goodness that's not the case anymore. But yeah, so it was up to the media to be like, these assholes have done this in three other countries and four other states. Don't buy a ticket. Don't bet a dime, you goddamn idiots. Yeah, I'm surprised none of the promoters at the time understood the leverage and the power that the media could manipulate with the audience and didn't try to get some of these guys in their pocket, you know? Because I feel like the the the... At the time, everything is so bottlenecked. There's no social media. There's no TV. It's through the press, through the papers. That's where everyone's getting their information, and that's given. It's presented as fact. There's not the idea that there's a slant or a political ideology behind what they're reading. So it's like, 
people, you know, why didn't these guys just pay off the news guys, dude? That's what I mean. That's the next step. You would think that that would have been part of the overall plan. Yeah. You know, hey, you want some free tickets? You want a VIP seat? You want to? You want to? Want to go to the meet and greet? Get your photo taken with the champ? Meet the ring ladies? Yeah. You want to? Uh, you know, avoid being uh, being told if you want a uh, interview quotation marks with the fighter in the alley out back. We're trying to. We're just trying to make the make the wheel run smooth around here, and we give it a little grease. Yeah. Instead, they're getting shit on in the media, man. That is, that is a harsh indictment, especially when that is the only public discourse being put out there. So if that's negative against you, you really are kind of fucked. And the fight was set for Queensberry rules, four ounce gloves, and if you've ever been popped with a four ounce glove, you know how much that fucking sucks. 12k to the winner, 1k to the loser. So a 12,000 to 1,000 difference in that fight, that'll motivate a man to win quite a bit. See, and that's that's the beautiful thing. I love to like, I know this is kind of a sidebar, but back in the like the Gorilla Monsoon commentary era, like late 80s WWF, when they would talk about like the winner's share of the purse versus the loser's share and that added element of how it made it where one, it was legitimately, it gave it that added legitimacy to the competition, and two, it gave that added legitimacy to the idea that there would be enough motivation and desperation that maybe somebody could beat someone outside of their rank. A job guy could beat a superstar because they're financially motivated. And it was, I like that because it is fucking true, man. Imagine you win a fight, you get 12 grand. You lose a fight, you got your ass whooped, and you only get like, less than 10% of that. That's gonna motivate anybody. Absolutely. And this fight was supposed to take place in St. Paul at the Minnesota Athletic Club. But the YMCA, and this is back when the C really stood for Christian, threw a fit over the depraved and violent sport being allowed in the city. The religious weirdos organized prayer meetings against the fight and bullied the governor into enforcing the law. On July 21st, Bob Fitzsimmons was arrested the moment he arrived in town. Parson, as usual, knew the best strategy in these situations was to cancel fights and then politic for future agreements with the city. Each fighter was paid $2,500 as a cancellation guarantee slash apology. And it is very funny that I found several articles poking at the hypocrisy of the St. Paul YMCA which has hosted sparring exhibitions in their building. And yes, the religious goofs really went full bore on this, according to the July 28th Star Tribune, with headline, Reformers detail their actions in the Hall Fitzsimmons matter. Of course they have no compliments for Mayor Bob Smith. It seems there is now no law prohibiting the pool room. So the mayor was not willing to stop the match. The, the mayor was just going to let this happen. He did not give two shits. He probably got a honorarium, if you will, yes. for his, uh, his, his part in this. But the, the prudes, the Puritans, they stood up and they panicked. So they turned to the sheriff to contact the governor. Quote, the sheriff made due requisition upon the governor for the aid of the military force of the state. Imagine working that hard to keep a boxing match from happening when the mayor's like, dude, it's cool, it's fun. Be cool, bro, we're all bros. 
and you have to grab the sheriff and send him to the governor and ask them to send in the fucking military to stop a boxing match. Yeah, that sounds about right. That sounds about the, the level of, of ideology we're dealing with. We don't want you to have a consensual sparring session, so we are going to call in the fucking military to force you at gunpoint to not be violent. It reminds me of <laughs> like how MMA back then, No Holds Barred or Ultimate Fighting, was in the late 90s where it's a sport, it's a consensual combat sport, people want to compete in it, people want to watch it, and the no fun nicks, the, uh, the, the, the Mrs. Lovejoys, the Maude Flanderses of the world are like, oh, won't someone think of the children? And then the, you know, the John McCains get all fired up and are like chasing, the police are chasing companies out of the buildings they rented and sold tickets to, and then they have to run a pay-per-view in an Indian reservation one state over, losing tons of money, all because somebody just didn't want two men to uh, compete in a consensual athletic contest. Yeah, and, and again, the point is, don't be violent or we will be violent. Like, right? Like, exactly. It, it's, it's just about, it's like, don't, if you don't have your seatbelt on, we will force you eventually at gunpoint for the consequences of not being safe. It's ridiculous. And it just shows that, like, I love the mayor, though. He was like, fuck that. I want to see a fight, man. He, and you know what? He probably I, had tickets, yeah. You, you do have to say, though, it ended up good for one of the two because they went from getting a $1,000 loser's purse to getting 2500 consolation. So one guy missed out, but one guy cleaned up. And speaking of violence, you're going to love this one. On Sunday, August 23rd, 1891, Parson Davies, boxer Jim Hall, and various other sporting men were drinking at McSweeney's Clubhouse by Lake St. Clair in Michigan. A bunch of fighters drinking that never, ever could go possibly wrong. Jim Hall was drunk and kept asking Davies for money. Davies did owe him for a fight purse, but you know, you're out partying, he doesn't just have that in his pocket. And like most money conversations while drunk, it got heated, name-calling was involved, and then Hall swung a bottle at Davies' head, missed him, and hit another man in the stomach, which sounds like some sort of like Popeye cartoon or like a fucking Charlie, like the Charlie Chaplin boxing short where yeah. it just sounds so cartoonish to swing a bottle at a man's head, miss it, and pop another dude in the fucking breadbasket. But it doesn't end there. According to the St. Paul Globe on August 25th, 1891, Davies then grabbed the lemon knife from the bar and slashed Hall's throat from chin to ear, Damn. barely missing his jugular. Wow, that is an escalation if I ever heard one, especially after like some Benny Hill, you know, comedic miss with the bottle. Like, uh, dude. You don't fuck with Parson. He went for the. He literally went for his throat with a lemon knife. Well, I bet that cut burned with the lemon juice. Well, I don't think that was the the main panic point because Hall collapsed to the floor, blood you know, holding his neck, blood pouring out of his slashed throat. Davies panicked because nothing sobers you up faster than possibly killing a friend. Though while on the floor, holding his slashed throat with his hand, Hall reassured Davies that he did nothing wrong and it was self-defense. I <laughs> like, you still owe me though, dog? Stating, quote, you've done me, Charlie, but stay by me. From the same article, quote, 
The room after the fracas looked like a slaughterhouse, everything in it being covered in blood. So I do give it to Hall for being like, all, like drunk, starting shit, getting his throat cut, lying on the ground, thinking he's gonna die, and be like, nah, man, I, I deserved this. Yeah, you, you got me. Um, good, good game. Yeah, that's some, that's some real friendship right there, you know? Back when men were men, and it would be like, all right, you, know, you slashed my throat, but I deserved it because I came at you with a bottle. So, uh, yeah, don't let me die alone. So the sheriff came and declared <laughs> it self-defense. Again, I assume he also was like, good game, shake hands. And he went on his way without arresting either party. Thankfully, Hall would make a full recovery. In November of the same year, Davies organized and promoted an, quote, international tug-of-war championship tournament in what? Chicago, which was just organizing teams of immigrants by their nationality because nothing says sportsmanship in 1891 like racial conflict. Yeah, is this some sort of, like, metaphor for, like, oppression? It's like, you're going to have you two races struggle and tug each other on a rope. This is, that, who, man, that's a dark booking, man. Oh, if you think that's dark, enjoy this one. In December, Davies promoted Julius the Ghost, a man-eating stallion that had reportedly killed three men and disabled five others, which was almost certainly not true. However, the enormous and unruly horse did bite off its owner's thumb. According to the Chicago Tribune on December 19th, 1891, 4,500 people, you heard me right, 4,500 people bought tickets to see if a famous horse trainer could break Julian in a time limit um, match, which he reportedly did and through animal abuse so unsettling that I won't describe it. So while he's doing boxing, while he's doing wrestling, he's doing a racist tug-of-war tournament and promoting a man-eating horse versus a cruel animal trainer, selling 4,500 tickets to see this go down. So holy shit, he truly was the greatest promoter of his day. Yeah, I don't know if I'm impressed or horrified. Like, where does that fall? That's between, like, um... Oh, uh, Lion, who are the, uh, the tiger uh, trainers from back oh, in the day? Oh, Siegfried and Roy? Yeah, it's like, is this Siegfried and Roy and that's just incredible? Or are you like teetering on the Michael Vick right there, buddy? A little, it's a Venn diagram. It's not an either or. It's, uh, it's, yeah. it's somewhere in the middle. There is a gray area and I'm glad I wasn't there to see it happen. But goddamn, you, you sold 4,500 tickets to see a motherfucker try to ride a horse. That's impressive. That's, that, hey... You know, we got to tip our hat because that is drawing a house off of a, off of a prayer, man. Yeah, it's some freak show booking, but if it works, it works. Yeah, vaudeville. Davies concentrated on building boxing back up across the U.S. and with decent success. Again, at best, I'm skimming over the boxing aspect of his career, but boxing was having lots of legal problems. We've talked about that in the last few episodes where so many states and cities outlawed prize fighting and then would get mad at sparring exhibitions and raid them anyway. So he was doing his darndest to build it back up. And here's another good one. On April 13th, 1892, Davies was out with a large party to celebrate the signing of a Bob Fitzsimmons-Jim Hall fight. You know this is going to be great because everybody's out at an after party enjoying a drink or 50. 
around 3 a.m. and after reportedly 42 quarts of champagne being consumed by the party, an ex-fighter named Pug Connors was insulting Peter Mayer for wearing a religious medal. I assume something Catholic since Mayer was Irish. Words were exchanged and Connors called Mayer a bloody coward for giving up in the 12th round against Fitzsimmons. And let's just face it, that's not a thing you tell a man. No, that, I mean, that's the 1890s equivalent of a jive turkey. <laughs> so, Mayor went after him, but Connors... <laughs> the mayor, he's like, what, motherfucker? Well, I'm Irish, bitch. Uh. Yeah, so Mayor went after him, but Connors had a knife. <laughs> Davies grabbed Connors' arm to stop him from using the knife. Quote, I'll kill you for that. Connors allegedly say, and Davies hit Connors over the head with a champagne bottle twice before it broke. Do you know how hard a fucking impact a champagne bottle to the noggin is when it doesn't break, let alone the follow-up? That's the worst, though. That's when it, because the physics did not dissipate back into the bottle, so your head got rattled. Man, that, see, and I just want to point out again, these guys aren't going to jail in these situations. He's slitting people's throats and they're like, it's cool, but they can't box, right? They're getting all this heat for boxing, but talk about the mayor's necklace and all of a sudden there's <laughs> a gang fight in there, man. That is amazing. According to the Cedar Rapids Gazette on April 14th, quote, Davies denied today that he hit Connors, but the latter has a hole in his head nonetheless. <laughs> yes. He's like, yeah, I didn't hit him. I hit him twice. Jim Hall, having been on the receiving end of Davies' quote, peacekeeping efforts, <laughs> helped Connors to a local drugstore and helped clean his wounds. So yeah, so Hall was there with his neck scar going like, yeah, man, no, I've been there. Let me, let me, get, let me get you, help you get cleaned up. Don't worry, you'll be fine in a couple of years. Yeah, listen, you'd never talk money with Parson at the bar, dude. You end up having a bad time. And unfortunately, because it was the 1890s, over the next few months, Davies lost boxing clients to departure and death. Hall left Davies for other representation. Frank Glover, though, died of tuberculosis of the stomach and bowels, which is not a real thing, so I'm curious about that. Jack Ashton and Pat Killen, both of a staph infection. So... Staph infections like tuberculosis, like pneumonia, which I can vouch for, if you have those and antibiotics have not been invented, you're in for a rough ride. Yeah, man, that's, that is one big factor time and again on this show. Guys die by, you know, various organ trail, you know what I'm saying, diseases because the medicine was so bad at that time, like, you know, a cut could kill you. And these guys are just going with no fucks given. So, uh, you know, I'm not surprised that more guys didn't die. So anybody who has done wrestling, you know, freestyle wrestling, Greco-Roman wrestling, pro wrestling, jiu-jitsu, judo, has had a staph infection at some time. And even with modern medicine, it's still a motherfucker. Oh, man, look at, like, what happened to Kevin Randleman, dude. Did you ever see that oh, picture God, where it yeah. ate the hole? In the, if you've ever seen it and you're squeamish, don't look it up. But if you want to see something crazy, it looks like it was CGI or something because there's literally a hole in the side of this guy's 
what is that, your lat or whatever? Yeah, it was disgusting beyond words. And again, that's what can happen when you have modern medicine. So it's no surprise that people died of this back in the day. Yeah, it's, it's pretty remarkable. But that's the point. You fuck with Parson Davies, you go down. So here's a, here's a little more of a lighter one. San Francisco Examiner, August 3rd, 1892, an article about the suspicion that Dan Stewart, a wrestler on an Australian tour with Joe Acton, was none other than Dan McLeod working under a different name to avoid the penalties of being a known worker after his series with Lewis under Davies' promotion in a land that frowned upon, quote, misrepresentation in the land of square sport. Dude, who would have ever thought that a wrestler and a worker would have tried to use a different name? I, you know, you can you imagine? I just see the, the Randy Orton Undertaker meme, like... <laughs> I, I was trying to figure out, do, in my mind, do I see him working under a mask or a fake mustache? Both. Yeah, <laughs> the mask with the fake mustache it's and a monocle. It's like the old, uh, like, Dasher Hatfield mask with <laughs> yeah, the, the yeah. mustache built into it. But yeah, so yeah, because in Australia they were still either they were still presenting it as a real sport and coming down hard on people who were obvious and notorious workers. So yeah, he probably was there working under an assumed name, which you could get away with for the most part. Yeah, I mean, we all know Australians weren't too bright in the 1890s, but they definitely knew the difference between a real fight and somebody phoning it in. And here's one that made me cringe, and you're going to cringe along with me. In February 1893, Parson Davies and Peter Jackson appeared as the auctioneer and as Uncle Tom in a touring production of Uncle Tom's Cabin. In theory, this should have been a breakout move for Jackson, paying him well and putting him in a different spotlight for the public. Should have been something like uh, like The Rock going to movies. It should have been you know, Peter Jackson, though he was contending with the color line, was still a boxing superstar that drew a lot of money. But as many pointed out after the fact, seeing him whipped on stage nightly killed his image as a heavyweight contender instead of a star breaking out across the color line. And yes, they reworked the script to include a four-round exhibition boxing match. Who boy, so much to unpack, so many mistakes, so many things that they didn't fully think through. Because yes, getting your, your boxing star onto Broadway with a touring play, perfect way to get him more into a pop culture crossover, but when he's up there being whipped and crying every single night on stage, it's then hard to pass him off as a world beater in the ring. Instead of booking a four-round boxing exhibition, they should have done with a Django finish and had him <laughs> like, take the whip and whip the slavers. That would have got that motherfucker over. Oh, boy. So, Parson Davies was given good reviews as being charming, charismatic, and able to rattle off dialogue convincingly, as any good wrestling promoter should be. So, yeah, a promoter being a smooth talker. Shocking! Peter Jackson's performance, however, proved that as an actor, he made a fantastic boxer. <laughs> oh, damn! So it just was bad for his, bad for his entire career. It was just a bad look. That it sucks. In March, Parson Davies was in New Orleans to represent Evan, the Strangler Lewis, in his match against Ernst Rober. Rober was an interesting case, having been a student, uh, a 
Padawan learner uh, from William Muldoon, and he essentially inherited the heavyweight title from William Muldoon upon his retirement instead of winning it off of his mentor, which is the shittiest thing a man can do when he refuses to put anyone over when he's on his way out. Instead of dropping the belt, he had to walk out on top, refused to make a new star, left the championship up in, uh, up in the air, and just more or less appointed his friend as the future champion. And here's the problem, whether it's a shoot or a work, eventually you're gonna have to defend that bad boy. That's what I'm saying, what does he think? Is he just saying like, you know what? I'm gonna pass the buck on, you know, the, the clever Lang that's coming down the pike, and I'm not gonna have to deal with this guy, but I'm just gonna make you the champion, and he's your problem now. Yeah, because it is a dick move in wrestling to do that, to be, hey, you know what? Instead of, you know, instead of making a star, putting somebody over, making a new champ, whether it's, again, it's a shoot or a work, He's just kind of like, nope, I can't, I can't lose on the way out. I, I'm William Muldoon. I don't do these things. Thoughts and prayers, best of luck. And according to the Standard Union, the match took place as part of an athletic carnival at the Olympic Athletic Club in New Orleans on March 2nd, 1893. It was a noted disaster attendance-wise. The room was seated for 6,000 and only 1,500 tickets were sold. Mm. The semi-main was a boxing match between Billy Hines and Billy McMillian. They had boxing added because boxing was hot in the South and wrestling was not. Sadly, they couldn't get the Tommy Ryan Dawson fight that everyone wanted and had been advertised due to Ryan spraining his ankle in training and the draw suffered from it. So yeah, so they had a marquee boxing match to move tickets in a boxing town at the last minute it fell through they put together the best replacement they possibly could but it really wasn't good enough to sell tickets yeah and that's you know that's the the hard part and the dark underbelly of promotion is sometimes you know card subject to change and sometimes it's out of your control and you lose a key ingredient in an individual card and in an individual show that's there to draw and you can shit the bed Muldoon was supposed to corner Rober, but didn't show up. I assumed that if it was a shoot, he knew Lewis would be too much for Rober, and if it was a work, he just didn't want his legacy tainted by being present for Rober losing the title. What a dick, dude. He's like, yeah, he's your pro- Like, I'm going to pass the torch. This number one contender monster who can probably beat you is looming. Good luck. Yeah, especially since he was supposed to fucking be there. What an <laughs> asshole. Uh... <laughs> The match was three out of five falls, alternating between Catches Catch Can and Greco-Roman, determined by coin toss. Lewis won the toss and chose Catches Catch Can to nobody's surprise against the Greco-Roman specialist rover. Before the match got underway, it was announced that the stranglehold was banned. From the Evening World Herald, quote, Lewis smiled while Rober looked as though a great load had been lifted from his mind. So, yeah, Lewis, again, we've talked about this man many times, and we'll talk about him many times in the future. His stranglehold at this point was so feared, so dangerous, so damaging, so potentially lethal, that it was often banned. So it was like an equalizer. It was him wrestling with one hand tied behind his back. It was a way to make it look more dramatic, maybe make it look more evenly matched for the sake of the betting dollar. And Muldoon still didn't show up. 
and it's alternating falls, and he still didn't show up. I think that speaks to how much confidence he has in his boy. The first fall was all Lewis, trying every hold until he had Rover on his back, quote, exerting his ponderous strength. The strangler slowly but surely bore Rover to the mat, securing the first fall in seven minutes, six seconds. And now all I want somebody to describe me is as having ponderous strength. Yeah, what does that mean? Does that mean he was like pondering his next maneuver? Or does that mean he like kind of move like He's awkward? just so strong that you have to think about it deeply. Wow, okay. Well, I'm in deep thought about that uh, analysis from this old-timey newsman. But what, what, so first fall, seven minutes, I'm smelling a shoot. The second bout was Greco-Roman and won by Rober in 28 and 52 seconds. Um, a, a heck of a go there, and a very Greco-Roman way to do things. If you're Greco-Romaning it, as the kids say, yeah, that's never going to be a quick match, especially with two men who are, uh, you know, trying not to lose there. But it's still shorter than, you know, it could have been, than a lot of things we've seen. So this does kind of, again, start smelling a little bit like a work to me. Yeah, because I feel like if it was a shoot there he would have utilized this first opportunity to grind his opponent out and wear him out while the rule set uh, sort of favored his ability to do that. And he, if, in my mind, knowing that he could have eventually ground him down in that round, in that fall, milk it as much as you can and wear the strangler out. And 28 minutes, it's definitely longer than the first fall, but yeah, it's starting to, that doesn't strike me as how, like, that seems a little workish to me. And... The third was Greco-Roman again, which Lewis won. Lewis apparently landed a neck hold with a trip that should have been a flying fall in less than 30 seconds, but the referee missed it. Describing Lewis, the article states, quote, The strangler gave the German another flying fall, but only got one point down. His defeat in the Greco-Roman bout has worked the strangler into a frenzy, and he went at his opponent as though his uppermost thought was to break every bone in his body. End quote. He threw Rover over on the mat as though he was only a 10-year-old child instead of a steel-hardened piece of humanity. So what a way to make Lewis sound like a goddamn monster, just a, like a wild animal just throwing a rock-solid man around like he's nothing. Yeah, that definitely sounds very workish now because it's like, it, it speaks, it tells the story. It's too much of a story. Like, he would, like, I don't, unless homie slipped. Because also, by Greco rules, he shouldn't be able to use a foot trip. So I don't even understand how that would be a, a legal takedown. Well, it gets even more dramatic in the fourth, which was Greco-Roman again, and won by Rover in 20 minutes, 43 seconds. Quote, amid much disorder. Apparently, Rover's cornerman started shouting that Lewis had been pinned, even though the referee was right there and said otherwise. Rover still managed to secure a full Nelson and turn Lewis over, though the crowd was yelling, the cornerman was yelling, and the referee was yelling after the pin. So now we're at 2-2. Two -two. Three, yeah. three of the four falls have been Greco, and it's lining up fifth falls, probably going to be catch. Favoring Lewis, leaves the guy the out, makes it look strong. Lewis had his whole moment. This has got to be a work, dude. Oh, absolutely. Especially the fifth, the uh, coin toss was declared catch as catch can. I feel they're even cooking the coin toss on yeah, this one. Yeah, that's got to be. You know what? In wrestling, I just don't know how to trust anymore. I really don't. I've been hurt too many times. In the fifth, 
quote, Lewis went at Rober like a madman and, securing a neck hold and a hip lock, gave Rober a flying fall in one minute and three seconds, winning the final bout in the match, which was for the championship of the world at Mixed Styles. So, it was a goofy title creation switch for a championship that could only be defended in a mix of any kind of styles per fall, while Rober would continue to claim the title of Greco-Roman champion, and after the match, quote, Rober challenged the world at Greco-Roman style. And I do want to point out that the times of the falls differed from account to account, so if you've read about this match yourself, you may very well have seen something different, should you be as big a nerd as I am. So some of the times are a little different in different articles, that's not super important. What's important is now Rover had been kind of separated from being the top guy. Lewis was now the top guy. He had beaten Rober, the student, the prodigy uh, trainee of Muldoon, and he was, you know, king shit of fuck mountain. It didn't draw as well as they would hoped, but the top guy was now wearing a belt under the tutelage of Parson Davies. Yeah, that's, you know, it just, it makes you wonder, man, what, uh, what the thought process was on the end of this from both guys towards Muldoon. Do you think that that was all part of the plan? Like they knew that he wasn't going to be there and it was just announced that way? Or do you think he really just backed out like a bitch? It, it could be either way. Because Muldoon valued his image over everything yeah. else. He didn't want to be associated with losing or with losers. So I feel that could have very well been a legitimate no-show. Um, the boxing, again, should have saved the house, but the match fell apart shit happens but this is one of those things where you know i'm sure the money was still made and now more money can be made on top of that because the most famous bad guy in the wrestling world in the 1880s 1890s was now the champion yeah and i think it further adds to his mystique that one muldoon wasn't there because then it looks like he was scared and two that the stranglehold was banned and he still won in 1894, yet again, boxing was having trouble across the country, with many states requiring matches to only be sparring exhibitions. The problem is that nobody wants to pay money to watch a friendly sparring match. Advertising a fight as to a finish was a great way to have the police show up at your door. In Boston on June 18th, 1894, the police raided the Bob Fitzsimmons versus Joy Choinsky match, the fight was declared a draw because of a police raid, according to the Weekly Leader. Fitzsimmons was handing Choinsky his ass and, quote, had not the police interfered, it was 10 to 1 that he would have finished Joe Choinsky in another punch. So yeah, we're back to having the cops raiding boxing matches, not just hoping to arrest the fighters, but the trainers and even the ticket buyers. Yeah, man, I really want to book that as a finish sometime, where the finish is uh, riot instigated by police <laughs> i don't know how much that would cost but you know we i'm sure we can find it in the budget on the hippodrome express old chap and this was another blow for his boxing management career davies parted way with peter jackson who set off for england but soon took over as the management of tommy ryan who would become one of the greatest middleweights in boxing history march 24th 1895 Parson Davies is nearly killed. Was it revenge from one of the people he shot, stabbed, or beat up? Nope. It was an accidental poisoning. When his doctor prescribed finessestine, 
for a bad case of the flu. Finesetine was a fever and pain reducer, which in the tradition of old-timey medicine caused massive health problems if used too much over time, including kidney failure and may be responsible for the death of Howard Hughes. But instead of the prescribed medication, Davies was accidentally given strychnine. Oh! Accidents happen, darling. What were they? Yeah, I always leave my strychnine in the bottle in the medicine cabinet right next to the life-saving pharmaceuticals. I know, this, is, this type of thing happens all the time. That is a doozy of a mislabeling old chap. I thought you were going to maybe talk about, like, he drank some, I don't know, some old cooking oil or something, but goddamn. So strychnine poisoning is marked by muscle contractions and spasms, which exhaust the muscles of the body until you can't even breathe, which is bad. From the San Francisco Examiner the following day, quote, he took the first dose about five o'clock this evening, and at six o'clock while dictating a telegram to the Seaside Athletic Club at Coney Island to his secretary, he suddenly began to grow rigid and lost all power of speech. A doctor was called who forced him to vomit, Davies was unconscious for an hour and slowly recovered, but the poisoning was probably at least partially responsible for the health problems Davies would suffer for the rest of his life. But literally the next day, Parson Davies was back at work trying to get Tommy Ryan a good paying fight. Dude, that motherfucker knows how to party. I'm sorry, man. Every time. He's doing something, it ends up in just the most ridiculous, near-fatal situation, and I'm here for it. April 20th, 1895, Parson promoted Evan the Strangler Lewis defending his title against Martin Farmer Burns in Chicago. We've covered this one before, and we covered it best in our episode about Martin Burns, so listen to that for the deep breakdown. But the gist of it is Evan Lewis was a mess at this point, a hard life of wrestling for years, and several severe respiratory illnesses, including tuberculosis. Hence the Omaha Bee calling him fat as a prize pig when he showed up. Lewis lost to Burns, and a new champion was crowned. One thing that strikes me when I read about this match is how Davies immediately makes a challenge to Burns on behalf of Dan McLeod, not even bothering to ask for a rematch against Lewis. Dude, Dan McLeod is his fucking boy, man. That fool has done, that's three times he has just like okey-doked for McLeod. And why? Well, if it's a work, there was an effort made to take the belt off the fast-fading Lewis while he could look halfway good, and then set up fresh matches. If it's a shoot, it was Davies trying to fire up his hot up-and-comer into the title picture instead of the broken-down former champ. Yeah, because, man, one thing we do know is that Farmer Burns is a bad motherfucker. And if you're going to beat Farmer Burns at this time, I don't care who you are. you got to be at the top of your game. Exactly. And here's another fun one with politics. In April 1895, Davies arranged a boxing match between Tommy Ryan and St. Louis welterweight Jack Wilkes. Davies paid an inflated price for a license through two cronies of the mayor because Chicago. But recently elected First Ward Alderman John Coughlin took exception to this because his opinion was any business or bribes in his district should pad his pocket and nobody else's. Coughlin bent over backwards to stop the fight after the mayor refused to sign the anti-prize fighting ordinance that the alderman pushed through legislation, 
hoping to stamp out exhibitions solely because he wasn't getting bribed properly. Ultimately, he hired two men to testify to a judge that it was a proper prize fight to a finish and issued arrest warrants for all involved. Another version from the Chicago Tribune claimed it was revenge for Coughlin and his friends not being let into the Casper Leon versus Jimmy Berry fight at the Armory and openly called him Rub Down Coughlin. Ooh, that's some fighting words back in the day. The previously clubbed-in-the-head Inspector Shea, listen to part one to understand that reference, let Davies know of the situation, so Davies called it off. He knew he could have paid off Coughlin, but would rather lose the 500 he spent on a license than be shaken down or risk police raiding the fight and ticket buyers and gamblers losing their money. This would be a big reason why Davies would slowly give up on fights in Chicago and promote out east. And again, I really respect Davies as a, as a promoter because instead of spending resources and so much bluster trying to force things to happen even though they could be a disaster, he just goes, man, I don't want to burn my audience uh, you know, that's here for the long term. I don't want to burn the gamblers that I need for the long term. I'm just going to write off that 500 as the cost of doing business and we'll try this again somewhere else. And yeah, the $500, he got to expose the mouse in the house, you know? He got to see the full extent to which this guy was gonna come at him if he didn't get a payoff. So yeah, fuck him. I, I but yeah, Parson Davies for, you know, for a promoter, the man has some scruples. In early 1896, Davies went on the road with a production of the stage comedy, The Wicklow Postman, which shared the bill with a boxing exhibition between John L. Sullivan and Patty Ryan. One could argue the exhibition was added to save a bad play. The November 25th, 1896 Los Angeles Herald stated that, quote, the Wicklow Postman had to be endured first. Damn, heat, <laughs> I was going to say before they started shitting on the play, that's the kind of, you know, double feature that I, I would buy a ticket to that, man. A boxing show and a, and a proper, like, Broadway play. It's too bad it was a bad play. That could have been a good one-two combo, man. And the critics pointed out in the exhibition that Sullivan was old and fat and that, quote, Patty Ryan could have done much as he pleased with John L. in the three rounds, but they sparred pleasantly with some science and many smiles. And at the end, John L. had not the breath for a speech and the curtain fell. <laughs> Damn. They're talking some shit about our boy L. Sullivan, man. And it was during this tour that Sullivan nearly died. He was drinking hard and daily, and on a train ride from one town to the next, a sloshed Sullivan found the bathroom occupied and decided to piss off the back of the train, which was traveling around 40 miles per hour, and I'm not gonna lie, that sounds kind of fun. That would be cool, yeah. Um, would you be like swinging it back and forth making machine gun noises? I'd be trying to write something, you Ooh, know, like, like, like skywriting. Yeah, oh, like, I'd be trying to like, like leave a trail that, that like left a, like the map. <laughs> to, to pirate kids, treasure or something? Well, unfortunately, the train hit a bump, and <laughs> Sullivan obviously wasn't hanging on to the rails as his hands were busy, and he was thrown off the back of the train and landed in a 10-foot deep ditch full of mud and January cold water. With his dick out. Oh, yeah, with his dick out. Makes it even worse. Oh, that's awful. Ah, fell on my dick. Fortunately, it was quickly realized that he wasn't on the train, <laughs> and it stopped only a mile or so down the tracks. 
It was Patty Ryan who found him in the ditch, and according to the Brooklyn Daily Eagle, quote, he threatened to fight anyone who touched him. He then got up and walked onto the train himself. That is the walk of shame of all walk of shame. Imagine fall, being so shit-faced you fall off a train while pissing, and everybody has to go looking for you. You're just in a fucking ditch face down. And be like, oh, get the fuck away from me. You're, I got this. I need to reserve, 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 uh, keep some sense of my dignity. And I, you know, zip up his dick. It's all muddy. And just walk back to the train, keeping his head up. Keep your head up, champ. Sullivan had a big cut on the back of his head, cuts all over his face, and serious bruises. His clothes had also caught on fire when a book of matches ignited from the impact. God damn! Sullivan had no idea what had happened and thought everyone was having a laugh at his drunken expense. Imagine, like, imagine, like, a drunken asshole. Like, we've both bounced. We both work security. Imagine some drunken asshole who's, like, falling down drunk, hitting his head, and then assumes everybody else is laughing at him and it's their fault and wants to fight them. And you imagine that that person is John L. Sullivan who could beat the shit out of everyone. Dude, I would just, if I was John L. Sullivan, because I've been on both sides of that, I've been John L. Sullivan woken up from a drunken stupor. The only difference was I, my pants weren't on fire. It's always a plus. I guess we know who is the liar liar. Once they were in Peoria, a doctor attended to him, told him to stay in bed, and the exhibition tour replaced him with Joy Choinsky from the New York Times on January 30th, 1896, quote, While having his wounds dressed, Sullivan cried like a child. It was with difficulty that he was managed. Being 1896, Sullivan's wounds got infected, and doctors had to lance the swollen lump around the cut on his head. Mm. And if you've ever seen an episode of Dr. Pimple Popper, you can imagine how it looked. Sadly, ticket sales plummeted, and some theaters canceled dates over Sullivan's absence. Talk about a bump, dude. I'm still tripping on taking a bump out of a train. Wall your dicks out. Dude, that is... And then catching on fire. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. He lands and then, <laughs> God damn, that's awful. What bad luck to. <laughs> Funny though. Sullivan made money writing custom letters to fans for two hundred dollars a pop. Merch money, bitches. Dude, and that's like uh, the cameos, the original oh, yeah, cameos. Exactly, it was like a cameo. And he made it back to the show, but continued to be a problem. He routinely showed up so drunk that he couldn't even pretend to box, which is bad because, as many of us know, getting really drunk can fill a man with punch mania and makes you think you're really good at boxing no matter what. See, but that's the reverse goggle effect, because then what happens is you only think you're good at boxing if you're not. But then if you're actually good at boxing like John L. Sullivan, then you end up just like falling over and drooling and getting bumped out of a train. And the indignities continue to pile up. One night in El Paso, he was found passed out on the sidewalk outside the Grand Central Hotel. On another night, he was so wasted that he went into the wrong hotel room and tried to get into the same bed as a Chicago record sports writer named George Aid. Aid woke up, saw Sullivan in his room, taking off his pants and muttering to himself, and imagine the fucking terror he must have felt. It's like sleeping in the woods, and a grizzly bear is trying to get into your sleeping bag with you. <laughs> I bet the headline was fucking hilarious. 
because they're talking about a sports writer. So this is just, he's like, oh, anything for a headline. No, I it's feel, like the reverend. No, I, I, I feel like this is the opposite. I feel like he's like, I can't report on this. It's just, <laughs> but no. fortunately, Abe got up before any snuggling could begin and got Sullivan back to his room. Sullivan kept showing Aid his scars from the train fall as they walked. <laughs> Dude, I almost feel bad for Sullivan. Like, he's just such a maniac that he's completely off his rocker and nobody can stop him. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. Because it's like, hey, what are you going to do on the micro level where it's like, drunk, drunk John L. Sullivan, you need to knock this off. Oh, you're beating me to death. And on the macro, he was just such a business monolith. What the fuck could you do? Yeah, totally, man. This is gnarly. Around this time, Davey started promoting a young up-and-comer named Tom Sharkey, who would later on do some business with wrestler Tom Jenkins, including some wrestling matches of his own. In August 1896, Davey's troupe was set to put on exhibitions in Kokomo, Indiana, in a skating rink, but there was no dressing room, so everyone had to use the building next door and enter through a window. The wrestlers and other performers had no problem with this, but in the main event exhibition, there was a delay because the increasingly portly Sullivan got stuck in the window. Winnie the Pooh-looking motherfucker. Yeah, this is... he, he got Winnie the Pooh. He tried he would crawl through the window and just got belly stuck, and an axe was required to chop him free and send him to the stage with a heart full of humiliation. I don't know if that... That sounds almost worse than getting bumped out of the train while you're taking a piss as far as yeah. walk of shame. Yeah, imagine you're going up for a boxing exhibition. And first of all, you have to climb through a window. Like, like what a fucking shindy situation that is. That's, that is that's the most shindy rest. thing I've ever heard. And you, and you like have to crawl through a window and you get stuck like Winnie the Pooh. People have to come looking for you. I picture like they had like his gloves on his fists and they're trying to pull him by his arms to get him get him greased out and they eventually have to chop him out with a fucking axe. He's a, he was a giant, oh bother piglet. <laughs> on December 17th, 1897, another attempt at running boxing in Chicago ended poorly. Right as the fans were getting settled, a large group of cops burst in to stop the fight. There had been a long court battle over boxing on city property, with unbribed and angry politicians not caring too much what the courts had to say about it. The cops were met by an equally large group of Pinkertons, who were hired just in case this kind of thing happened. Damn! So yeah, so the, the, you know, Davies hired a bunch of Pinkertons to defend the boxing venue. The cops burst in on behalf of a corrupt, unbribed politician. And as people are setting down to watch a boxing match, they are treated to a full-blown club fight between cops and a private detective agency. Dude, that is some Monday Night Raw Attitude Era booking at its finest. It's the cops versus the Pinkertons in a, in a Chicago street fight? Sign me up. Take my money. In Chicago, the vacuum left by Davies' boxing promotion was filled by New Orleans native and all-around piece of shit, Lou Houseman. He was well-connected and had the political pull, aka was willing to bribe the right people, to get fights licensed. He was also incredibly racist and wanted to, quote, cleanse prize fighting in Chicago of the stain of black fighters. Ew. So, yeah, he was really setting back any progress that Parson Davies had you know, built up in that city. 
On August 31, 1892, Chicago Tribune claims that Davies was headed to Chicago to partner with Colonel John Hopkins to manage a pair of theaters. Chicago had grown too toxic, too difficult to run in, so he said, peace out, bitches, I'm heading south. And I don't blame him, man. This is why Chicago had some, couldn't have good fighting at that era, because, man, they had... This guy is going above and beyond to try to create something, and he can't have it because you got these politicians trying to line their pockets. It's funny. It's like the old, you know, history keeps repeating itself. However, there was more drama in theater promoting than there was on the stage. Despite an antitrust and anti-monopoly law being on the books, and despite the local papers practically begging for the state to enforce it, the trust of Claw and Erlanger controlled nearly all of the traveling theater acts that came through the city and did every dirty trick to force independent managers and promoters out of town. Essentially an old-time Ticketmaster, Live Nation, or AG kind of move. So Davies and Hopkins did their damnedest to get a jump on the near monopoly by opening their theater season early. Davies turned down boxing matches to work on his vaudeville promotions and seemed to do it well and happily until June 4th, 1899, when the St. Charles Theater was burned down by an arsonist. Oh, man, these motherfuckers are just hating on him. So they were that pissed that he was running that they burned his shit down. That is the prevailing theory. Nobody was arrested because why would they be? So, yeah, he just did a little too well, so his, uh, his theater had to go away. Well, we can only hope to be so lucky one day. <laughs> well, hopefully not, because we are sitting in pretty much the only large uh, concert venue that is independent in the city of Denver, Colorado, the Oriental Theater. So if somebody was going to get torched by a corporate conglomerate, it would be this place, and I would probably be in it. Yeah, so uh, if you're going to do that, the address is, no, 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 burn down one of these corporate conglomerates, man. We need more indies. Anyway, Chongo digresses. In 1898, Charles Davies co-promoted another big wrestling match, making a deal with William A. Brady to pair the terrible Turk Yusuf Ismail against Evan, the Strangler Lewis. The May 15th St. Louis Globe Democrat announced the contract signing, with the match to be two out of three falls, catch as catch can, 2K to the winner, and 500 to the loser. Again, I've covered this one a few times, and in most detail during the recent episode about the Terrible Turk, which I, of course, recommend listening to if you haven't already. But the short version is the match took place on June 20th in Chicago. The first fall ended when the Turk put the strangler in a choke of his own. The referee broke it up, and as the Turk was ready to celebrate, the referee declared the choke was illegal throttling and gave the fall and the match to Lewis on disqualification. The crowd nearly rioted. And I have a feeling things weren't exactly on the up and up with that referee. I'm a little bright, good deductive reasoning. I put things together. Was Davies in charge of the referee selection? Did the Turk walk into a money-making scheme while expecting a shoot match? Was it all nonsense? Who knows? Either way, William Brady addressed the crowd and told them, quote, We are not here to rob the public, because what promoter would ever do that? and said they'd give Lewis the winner's purse, but demanded an exhibition match to give the crowd their money's worth. This led to an argument with a referee, who was then escorted out by the police and replaced on the spot. 
The first match ended with another disqualification against the Turk, and then two falls by Ismail giving him the win. Lots of heat, lots of shine, a showbiz home run. So we have the opening match where everybody's excited, and then the Turk looks like he won, but no, the referee has a weird swerve to provide, and the Strangler, who everybody hates, is now, you know, the winner, and the crowd's gonna riot, so the promoter says, we will give him the winner's purse, but we get an exhibition for the people here to witness and get their money's worth, and then it's a disqualification, and it's two falls, and the referee is arguing it, so the referee is escorted out by the police and replaced on the spot, that showbiz, baby. That's some good fucking booking, man. That's like a whole season of angles in one show. And that's just the open. Welcome back to Chicago. God dang. That's a, I mean, that, talk about getting some heat when the referee has to get escorted out of the building, though. That's good shit. Sadly, December 14th, 1900, Patty Ryan dies of kidney failure. A too easy way to go when you're drinking industrial whiskey and getting pounded on all your life with bare fists. Nearly every obituary I found lists only one accomplishment from his career, losing the title to John L. Sullivan. Damn, not... <laughs> didn't matter that he won it, didn't matter that he had it, it's just you lost. Man, what a loser. You might remember from the first part of the series that Davies was very concerned about the need to legitimize boxing and wrestling with universal rules and weight classes, instead of everything being a slap-together agreement between two men like a circus sideshow act. Well, that was still on the forefront of his mind, and in 1904, Davies and Thomas S. Andrews, who wrote the annual boxing record book, promoted the plan for a national boxing association, which formally came into existence on February 8th with the intention of regulating and promoting boxing as a unified rule sport, Fighters had to pay a 25-cent fee, and unregistered fighters couldn't fight in NBA clubs. The association would enforce all contracts and payments, would suspend fighters, and blacklist suspicious referees. What a fucking move in 1904. Well, he probably just got fucking tired of all the bullshit, and he decided that he needed to really try to help things move along in the right way. Yeah, because this does a couple of things. A... It gives the states zero excuses to shut down matches yep. because it's regulated. We're making sure it's on the up and up. Gamblers are being protected with who they're betting on. Nothing can be fixed. We are taking care of the crooked referees. We are keeping the unregulated fighters out of the game. We are making it regulated weight classes. The rules are universal. It makes it... It makes it more legitimate. Yeah, it's, it's legitimizing the fight game. And it's, you know, these are the practices that are in place today. So it just shows another element of what a trailblazer Davies was, you know. The NBA didn't last long, but it was a good first step towards cleaning up boxing. And others would try again and again until 1927 when it finally stuck. You might remember that story. We covered it a bit in our Wrestling in the 20s series. Muldoon, of course, was involved. Uh, always Muldoon involved. You just can't say, unless there's about to be a title change, apparently. In 1904, Davies was promoting vaudeville in New Orleans, a weird one where I honestly can't tell if he was joking or not. There were plenty of people suggesting prize fights be held on boats three miles from shore, thus in international waters. 
He said there were problems with this and suggested holding them in the sky via airship, but suggested waiting until the St. Louis World's Fair for further demonstrations and testing of airships. So he is legitimately, or jokingly, I have no idea which, saying, how about we hold them in dirigibles? And I feel like it was a joke. I feel like he was being a silly goose, like, oh yeah, yeah, let's put a boxing match on a boat. Fuck you, let's put it in the sky. Yeah, totally. Although you never know, man, he's a visionary, and the boxing on a boat thing is not so preposterous as it seems, because that's one way they worked around gambling for a long time, you know? So, I mean, I could see that someone would suggest that, but I think, like, in space, man! <laughs> we'll do boxing on the moon! He also visited Havana with the idea of opening a theater in Cuba, ironic considering his brother's work at squashing Cuban independence. Listen to part one of the series for details on that. In 1905, Davies tried to put together one of the first Legends fights, senior division, whatever you want to call it. He tried matching 47-year-old John L. Sullivan against 44-year-old Charlie Mitchell, and while we see fighters of that age step into the ring constantly today, it's still not a good idea. But let alone men who spent most of their careers in the hard-living, hard-drinking, hard-fighting era of the 1880s and 1890s. Because a 1905 47-year-old is, is like an 85-year-old in 2023. Oh yeah, the sports medicine, the nutrition, just the lifestyle, everything, the actual medicine. You're just life expectancy, especially if you're a roughneck pro wrestler or pro boxer, you're gonna, your life expectancy is going to be real short. And speaking of expectations, the match was proposed as uh, Queensberry rules with two-minute rounds and four-minute rests between them. I like that. Yeah, that's what they're going to need if you want these old men to not get gas, dude. The... Selling point for both men was the $40,000 payout for the motion picture footage. Both men needed that money, and they immediately started talking shit in the papers. The Los Animus leader quoted Mitchell when asked if he would take the fight as replying, Ask John. I will be ready to meet him anytime, anywhere. Including the old folks. Yeah. The negotiations were rough with Mitchell wanting the fight happening within a matter of weeks, and Sullivan wanting at least four months to get into shape, which he definitely needed. They, of course, nearly got into a fist fight arguing about it in Davies' office. Davies did his best to salvage the fight and set a date, but Sullivan signed on for a vaudeville tour, and that was that. And honestly, when you heard that a fight was happening in Davies' office and he had to break it up, how many of you thought somebody was going to get stabbed? Yeah, I was like, well, he's lucky he didn't get his throat slit this time. I mean, you know, obviously you caught him on a nice day. Yeah, I feel at this point people were like, don't start shit around the parson. He will fucking kill you. Yeah, serious, man. Like, listen, I know I'm the world heavyweight champ, but don't kick the shit out of me or cut me. In early 1906, Davies was struck by a case of Bell's palsy or possibly a stroke that resulted in his left eye being paralyzed, according to the February 23rd New York Evening World. He would recover and relapse again and again as his health declined. From that point on, he was recovering at spas, springs, and various doctors' clinics, and that took as much of his time as booking vaudeville and boxing. In October 1908, Davies left New Orleans after a decade of running venues and shows there. The main reason was the climate affecting his health. 
though it also might be attributed to legal issues regarding his partner's debts and various lawsuits attached to them. So yeah, if you're starting to have health problems, the heat and humidity of the South might not be the place for you. Yeah, and the heat and the humidity of the South, if you are having financial issues with your shady business partners, might be a good reason to leave as well. He bounced between Chicago, New York, and New Orleans until a series of strokes landed him with relatives in Chicago. He recovered enough to walk, though reports claimed he couldn't walk. At every turn, the papers were claiming he was dying, and every time he would reply with his future plans. Quote, no, I'm not dying. I'm going to Chicago next Wednesday, he told the press. Despite being found on the floor of a New York hotel room, he soon set sail to England to scout boxers to possibly match against Jack Johnson. So what a like twilight time of his life where he's still like having medical problems from the strychnine poisoning, he's having strokes, he's falling down, he's being found on the floor with people thinking he's dead, and the next day, and this is again, this is the early 1900s, he pops up and goes, I'm going to get on a boat and go to England. Yeah. I've got to put a fight together. Well, I mean, workhorse, man. You see, he's got that Vince McMahon work ethic. He's, he's just powering through. And also, if you are on your last legs, maybe just getting lost in your work and not thinking about it is the way he's... Oh, I'm sure that was part of it. Yeah. And Charles Parson Davies had his last hurrah as an event promoter on July 6th, 1918 in Chicago. It was an Elks benefit at the White Sox baseball park to raise funds for the Great War. President Woodrow Wilson signed three baseballs to be auctioned off, and the event was to feature baseball, boxing, and wrestling. And because, of course, the boxing drama flared up. According to the Chicago Tribune on July 2nd, with the police chief refusing to give it the green light, and the Elks hoping the mayor would overrule him because it wasn't a finished prize fight, it was an exhibition. Mayor William Hale Thompson, who clearly had the memory of being publicly booed by boxing fans the year before over his stance on the sport, was a real asshole about it. The Dayton Herald reported that his sarcastic remarks when he told the Elks to bother the governor and legislature for an emergency session to legalize boxing if they wanted so badly. The crowd was still treated to a few wrestling matches, a ball game, a band playing, and plenty of barbecue for the $2.50 ticket, which was, quote, considered a little high by the Chicago Tribune. Well, that's what happens if you get in the way. I love how, like, the, the, these guys are such high horse assholes. It's like President Woodrow Wilson signed baseballs to be auctioned off, but I'm not getting my cut, so fuck you, buddy. This ain't going down in my neighborhood. That's Chicago, baby. <laughs> in November of 1918, Charles Parson Davies had moved into the Elks National Home in Bedford, Virginia. His occupation was listed as theatrics and boxing. His health was recorded as poor, with a bad heart, paralyzed on the right side. And this is where he died on June 28, 1920, at 9.20 a.m. Two days earlier, he suffered from a cerebral hemorrhage that had robbed him of all his memories. I read dozens of obituaries, hoping to find a poetic send-off for such a prolific sports promoter. But they were all very utilitarian in nature, listing his professional accomplishments, and retelling one of several versions of how he got his nickname. And in a way, that was really the perfect statement on his life. He was only as public as he had to be to get business done. 
He wasn't flashy and never put himself front and center. He made stars and made moments in sports that reverberated throughout history, even a century later. The world remembers John L. Sullivan, Evan Lewis, Peter Jackson, and the rest, and I think that legacy alone would have made it worthwhile to him. Yeah, and also, he will cut a motherfucker. He, uh, he, he, he was one of the greatest promoters, one of the most honorable businessmen in this dirty game that ever came along, and he did business the right way, and he was down to cut a motherfucker, and he had some of the greatest bar fights of all time. This guy was a fucking legend. Absolutely. I'm so glad that I, I, I kind of saw him in the background of so many stories, being behind the scenes on so many things, and I was like, I have to know more about this guy. And here we are. We did a four-part series on this man, this promoter, this visionary who took wrestling and boxing to the next level. He made pro wrestling cool because he made pro wrestling dangerous with Evan the Strangler Lewis as his client. He made boxing legendary and kept it legal in so many places and was behind the last great bare knuckle boxing match and all the craziness around it. And he brought black boxers to the forefront in a very racist time in America where nobody could pass the color line with ease or if ever. He was a lecturer. He was an actor. He was a, a tug-of-war promoter. He was an orphan. He was a crazy bastard who would cut your fucking throat literally if you fucked with him. He is, you know, he is a, he is a, he is a legend. He is a god. He is my new personal hero. And I'm glad I know so much about him now. Dude, yes. Uh, Parson Davies, we here at the Hippodrome Express salute you, good sir. Hear, hear. Indeed. So, this story is now over. I hope you liked hearing it as much as I enjoyed talking about it. Um, we'll be back in a couple of weeks. We're on schedule now. Neither one of us are planning on getting deathly ill again. So um, we'll, we'll keep this, uh, this crazy thing going. Make sure you follow us on Twitter and on Instagram. Like us on Facebook. I like to post all of the crazy headlines and articles and illustrations that I find in these old papers. And with a two-week delay, I was having such a hard time not giving away the game by posting the, you know, Parson Davies, you know, bashes in brains, Parson Davies cuts a boxer's throat. I wanted, I was just, I wanted to share those so much, so I'm glad I get to post them now that we have got this recorded and up and running. What did you think about this story overall? Dude, it lived up to the hype, because I'll tell you, you're not, you're not joking, because I can tell when a show is going to be juicy based on the way that you present it to me leading up to it, like, Oh man, I can't tell you this. The texts I get, you guys, when he's really excited about it, I knew this was going to be juicy. And it lived up to the hype, man. This guy, Parson Day, these are the exact characters of why this show that we do is so fascinating. Because, God, you couldn't make this shit up. So we'll be back in two weeks with more crazy tales, more crazy adventures, tales of violence, tales of madness, tales of pro wrestling history. For Chongo Bronson, I'm Nick Gossert. We'll talk to you then. Cut print martini. Peace out, nerds. Yeah.